This is Archive Atlanta, episode 148, Peyton Wall. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week I'm sharing the story of the Peyton Wall, a physical barricade one of actually two, erected in 1962 to stem the tide of black homeowners in what was once an all-white Atlanta neighborhood. This topic has been on my list since day one, but it's also the topic that I continue to push to the bottom of that list because there has been lots of writing about it. It's been referenced in at least five you know, really popular books, uh, several papers, a couple of essays. And so I thought, you know, like, who am I to talk about this? What do I have to offer? And so it took me a minute to push away the imposter syndrome, but I realized that, you know, some of my listeners are only getting their Atlanta history from me, which is an honor. But also a lot of these essays don't dive into the super detailed, you know, history timeline or backstory that I'm going to talk about today. So here we are. If you don't know about the Peyton Wall, you're going to learn about it. And if you have heard about it, hopefully you'll learn something you didn't know before. Before we get into 1962, I want to give you a little bit of background so that you can understand how and why Atlanta got to the point of erecting these barricades. If you haven't listened to episode 120, which was residential bombings, you should definitely do that because I talked about how I was guilty of thinking of the period before and after white flight to be this blip, like there was white people living in Atlanta and then there wasn't. And the reality is that there were three decades at least of incessant terror, violence, and destruction against Black families that purchased or rented homes in what were considered white neighborhoods. By the 1950s, the city's white elected leaders were knee-deep in the city-too-busy-to-hate thing, where everything is going to be quietly negotiated behind the doors of City Hall, and everything will appear to be just fine to outsiders. And that sort of works for a little bit. World War I ended in 1948, and that brought an influx of returning soldiers looking for places to live. This contributes to the massive housing shortage that I always talk about, and in Atlanta, it's further complicated by the attempts at separating the races. And even for Black people that did have housing, nationally, I think the numbers, it was like 90,000 Black people are living in substandard housing, um, with 31,000 of those in homes that were considered dilapidated. In Atlanta, there was temporary success with written agreements about who would develop where, which real estate agent would sell where, and this was kind of like a biracial you know, agreement. But by 1960, African-Americans were just not having it anymore. They wanted the right to purchase home wherever they chose. So to combat this, what white neighborhoods called quote-unquote Negro encroachment, they were forming citizens groups. The one I'm focusing on today was called the Southwest Citizens Association, which formed in 1952. Its first officers were S.B. Avery, Dennis Young, Evelyn Campbell, Royal Howell, and John Roberts. And their work was to create and push for physical buffer zones between their properties and neighboring Black communities. And these were done with um, zoning things industrial, um, putting in commercial, um, or you'll hear later, cemeteries, and the general idea that we're talking about here is like the West End, Westview, Cascade Heights, and then all the surrounding smaller neighborhoods around it. In the first year of this group's existence, they unveiled what was called their five-point barrier plan. By the start of 1962, Ivan Allen Jr. took the helm as Atlanta's mayor, replacing William Hartsfield 23 years in office. And Allen ran against 
Lester Maddox, who was, for lack of a better term, an epic racist. So there was an understanding that he was kind of coming in, you know, a little bit of progressive candidate, so to speak. Barely a few months into taking office, Allen is inundated with letters from white homeowners along Fielding Lane in Peyton Forest. We know this because all of these letters are in the Ivan Allen Digital Archives at Georgia Tech. I will put a link in the show notes for you guys because it is, you know, it's pretty intense to read these actual letters. In July of 1962, there are several letters, but there's two from C.J. Owens and E.E. Rayburn um, pleading for help from the mayor and the board of aldermen. And the major complaints were as follows. They want the neighborhood to remain all white. They want to rezone the property along Gordon, which is today Martin Luther King, um, between Peyton and Lyndhurst to M1, which was industrial zoning. And they wanted to rezone land along Gordon for a black cemetery. This was kind of on the edge of Westview. They also wanted to dead end both Peyton and Harlan Roads. And lastly, and the most universal complaint is they wanted to be protected from what they called, quote, Negro blockbusting tactics, end quote. Blockbusting is defined as the practice of persuading homeowners to sell a property cheaply because of the fear that people from another race or class were moving into the neighborhood. And so the thought is that, you know, this scares the white homeowner into selling at below market value, thereby cheating them out of the full value of their investment. The residents of Peyton Forest and Utoy Forest complained that Black real estate agents and developers from Callaway Realty, um, Alexander and Associates, uh, Fuller Realty, and this was just a couple of the names, would travel down their streets. They would point to homes and, and some would knock on their door, maybe a couple letters in the mailbox. But really, it was the, the driving and pointing. And it's really kind of silly when you read it now. And, and I think it was even silly then. And I think that this was sort of their angle to justify their request for the zoning and the dead end streets. You know, I think they were like, oh, my, I mean, people wrote like, this is causing me mental anguish. You know, there's no reason for these black people to be driving down the street. You know, the other day someone stopped and pointed. And I mean, you know, my life is miserable. And that's what all these letters say. By September, the citizens of the Peyton Utoy Forest communities presented a formal, typed up plan to Mayor Allen titled, quote, Proposed Community Stabilization Plan, Peyton, Harlan, and Willis Mill Road area, end quote. Their stated goal was to, quote, effectively and permanently stabilize these communities, end quote. They acknowledged that for this plan to be successful, it must please both white and black Atlantans. And they thought, they had the thing that would do that. So they're like, hey, listen, the white people, we're going to get Harlan and Peyton Roads closed and black people are going to get 250 acres for housing that was previously unavailable to them. And this is a place that you could build 400 new houses and, you know, we're going to put new roads to get to there. Now, this the community group wasn't doing this. This is like what they wanted the city to do. Around this same time, Mayor Allen, with the support of the Board of Aldermen, vetoed the proposal for that new black cemetery. And so everyone, this sort of sets off the chain of events. Everyone is mad. And afterward, he understands the situation. So he holds a press conference to discuss the street changes and, you know, how are we going to resolve this? In November of 1962, Dr. Clinton Ellsworth Warner bought a home at 483 Fielding Lane. 
And this act is often cited in other written accounts as like the impetus for the erection of the barricades because that happened just a month later. But before we get there, I want to share more about Dr. Warner because he was pretty awesome. He was born in 1924 on the campus of Morehouse because his father was a professor there. And then the family later lived in Mosley Park. He graduated from a Harry Medical College. He fought in World War II. He got married in 1955 and he was practicing and living in St. Louis. Finally moved to Atlanta and he bought a home in Collier Heights. So it's in Atlanta that he fights numerous civil rights battles. He is part of the Committee for Cooperative Action, which wrote a pamphlet um, on inequities for Black Atlantans. This was in 1960. He took part in a sit-in at the Heart of Atlanta Motel, which I talked about in the uh, Downtown Hotels episode. He was considered one of the founders of Morehouse School of Medicine. Um, He fought to desegregate Grady Hospital. And in the same year he did that, he decided to buy this home in Peyton Forest. And you know, Peyton Forest, where all of this drama is going on. So this, of course, was not at all accidental. Within days of the news of the purchase, 20 white people are found picketing outside the home, promising to contest the sale. Tensions were high, and city leadership felt the need to act. On December 17, 1962, the Board of Aldermen passed an ordinance to create a racial buffer zone by closing both Harlan and Peyton Roads, deeming them, quote, no longer useful or necessary for public use and convenience, end quote. There was only one no vote that came from Richard Freeman, who questioned the legality of the whole thing. The next day, the two permanent barricades were erected on Peyton, just north of Harlan Road, and then on Harlan Road, um, just before the intersection with T Street, that's T-E. Almost immediately, they were being picketed and protested, um, mostly by Black people, of course, who were holding signs calling it the Peyton Wall um, or Atlanta's Berlin Wall. You know, lots of references to East and West Germany. Also, immediately, there were legal challenges. So Donald Lee Hollowell um, filed a petition in municipal court. Um, His angle was, we have to remove these because they are a nuisance. There was also a superior court case challenging the actual legality of just closing public streets in the first place. All of the major African-American activists and real estate developers gathered to form the All Citizens Committee for Better City Planning. Q.V. Williamson, Reverend S.S. Williams, and Ralph Abernathy, just to name a few, um, they promised vigils and protests at the site, and they, you know, they kind of agreed to all speak as one unit. They also urged Black people to boycott any business in the West End because none of these businesses, you know, fought against the idea of these barricades. The Southwest Citizens Association defended the barricades, of course, led by a man named Virgil Copeland. The white citizens decorated the Peyton Road um, barrier with Christmas paper and ribbon. On one sign that said street closed, someone wrote underneath, thank the Lord. Mayor Allen, on the other hand, calls for the formation of a biracial coalition. Like this is, this is, he knows that this is not going to go well. So he's like, okay, you know, I'm going to have everybody come together at the table. And he invited um, the Atlanta Negro Voters League, uh, the Empire Real Estate Board. Both of those organizations were black. And then the West End Businessmen's Association and the Southwest Civic Association. Again, those were uh, both white. So the first two group say like, no, no thanks. We are being represented, like we said, by the All Citizens Committee. And that committee was adamant that the barriers must come down before they were willing to talk about anything. 
Ivan Allen was busy defending himself at first um, after receiving a wire from Ralph Moore, who was a student leader at Atlanta University. Um, Allen replies in this very mansplaining response. I don't know if a man can mansplain another man, but it was very patronizing. He's like, look here, young college kid. This is the 52nd area of Atlanta to undergo expansion slash encroachment since January 1st. I have handled all previous 51 perfectly with zero issues, so let me do my thing. He also says that both parties are at fault, like the black real estate agents were blockbusting. They should have been doing that. You know, the white people are at fault as well. And he ends by exclaiming that the wall doesn't even impact black drivers. It's only the white people that are being convenienced. And no, nobody was buying this. The efforts were pretty futile. Um, Allen was being criticized locally and national. Even former Mayor Hartsfield rips this idea. There's a lot of funny political cartoons. Um, and he just takes the opportunity to be like, I don't know what he's doing. I would never do this. I would never have done this. Hollowell continued the legal fight in municipal court, uh, putting six white property owners on the stand to testify about how much of a nuisance this was. For a lot of people, you know, a drive that would take them four minutes, let's say going to school or going to work, was now taking them 20 minutes or, you know, adding 12 or 15 miles to a commute that was normally a few. Harlan had been a public road since 1912 and Peyton since 1925, so deciding that they were no longer needed made no sense. The judge, however, deferred the ruling. Um, he didn't really want to deal with it. Rodney Cook and Richard Freeman, um, both um, aldermen, introduced a new resolution to remove them immediately, but they were defeated with a 10 to 3 vote. So the third no vote came from um, Buddy Folks, I think was his last name, who admitted, he's like, listen, I was I was wrong supporting this, you know, the first time. It's wrong. We should take it down. So now we have kind of three aldermen that are against it. In February of 1963, someone or someones sawed the Harlan Road barricade in half and threw the pieces in the nearby creek. Immediately, Angry white residents gathered on the street. They began chopping down trees and pulling underbrush out to fill the hole. The Ku Klux Klan reported that they were on their way out to visit, and city council announced that it would rebuild it as soon as possible. That same month, news broke that Robert Bright, who was living at 427 Peyton Road, sold his home to a black real estate investor named C.C. Thornton. So this was partially true. Um, I think they had made a deal, but it had not closed. Later it closed, and then Bright was um, living there but paying rent. But regardless, five hooded clan members, Calvin Craig, W.E. Cleepor, Harold Corsi, Richard Powell, and J.D. Johnson, went down the street and they picketed outside for two hours dressed in you know, fully full clan outfit. They held signs that said whites have rights too. By March of 1963, the Superior Court decision was handed down by Judge Whitman. The barricades were unconstitutional. He cites the rulings against Atlanta's attempts at racialized zoning from 1915, 1918, and 1924. I talked about that in depth in the Ashley Ordinance episode. And Allen does not contest a decision. He writes a letter to the board, to the city attorney, urging them to do the same. He then ordered the walls taken down. Virgil Copeland and the white neighbors of Peyton Forest joined together 
And then as a group, they sell their 30 homes to a black real estate firm in an attempt to get as much value as they could. Just a few months later, Mayor Allen traveled to Washington, D.C. at the request of President Kennedy to testify before Congress in the support of the federal law mandating public accommodations for African-Americans. Against the advice of most Atlanta leaders, even some black leaders, he went and he testified knowing it could ruin his political career. Maybe it was atonement for the Peyton Wall. I don't know. I want to say like it was guilt. Um, but and Allen often spoke about the mistake that erecting those barricades was and how the legal system kind of saved him and, you know, forced him to do the right thing, which was to take them down. So there you have it. The story of the Harlan and Peyton Walls and the short yet lasting legacy they have left on Atlanta. Of course, the demolition of the barricades was not the end of the story. Cascade Heights continued to struggle with their changing demographics. I talked about that in the Cascade Heights episode. Um, when they banned for sale signs there in 1967, Black leaders were quick to liken that to another Peyton Wall. There was even an episode in 1980, uh, yes, I said 1980, um, where a road in DeKalb County, I think it was Porter Road, was being repaved and there was barricades that had been put up there in 1959 and so like you know fire and police services are like listen can we not put these barricades back and it was a huge issue because i think it was meadow lark was the white subdivision but then porter road was where black people lived and so there was a lot more references to peyton wall that were made at that time physically there is nothing left to see other than the spot where these barricades were um, we don't have you know remnants of them they were they you know people talk about them later like oh it's just a chain across the road but you know we have photos and it was very much concrete and wood and you know not just a simple chain thank you everyone for listening remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen uh, you can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. I also have some small changes coming to the podcast. Uh, don't worry, I'm going to announce it next week. It's all really exciting. It's a way for me to bring you kind of more history, some of the smaller episodes. Um, so look for kind of a little special announcement episode. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.